powerful and important people know the art of making an entrance. Let's talk about the president. I grew up in Virginia. I've been to Washington, D.C. many times. And whenever a presidential motorcade is coming through, everything shuts down. It doesn't matter if you're on foot and you're trying to walk from one monument to the next. There'll be some man in a suit with one of those curly things coming out of his ear. Oh, hold on. You got to wait here. And like, why? And then there comes the limousine with the flags on it and the, you know, the police motorcycles and everything. And everybody stops and looks. And who is this guy? And it's, it's the president, of course. Very much like Caesar, when he would return from conquering something, they would build a new arch for him to ride through, and there would be flowers thrown into the air, and the captives would all go before him, and everybody would be shouting, Hail Caesar! So rulers, presidents, and kings know how to make an entrance. How about athletes? Athletes know how to make an entrance, don't they? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rep hometown a little bit here. Uh, when Virginia Tech football had their first game after the pandemic when they were allowed to open up. Did anybody see that game? If you've never been to Lane Stadium in Blacksburg before, it is the loudest place I've ever been in my entire life. And before the game begins, before the team comes out, they, they turn down all the lights and they start playing Enter Sandman by Metallica. And everybody starts to jump up and down. And you can feel the stadium moving up and down. And when I was watching this game on, on my laptop, I was folding laundry. But it was the first game back after like two years of having no football. You could feel the energy from here. And I was getting hyped up in my bedroom like, yeah, Tar Heels are going down, baby. And out they come with the flags and the fireworks. That's making an entrance, right? Or like when the Bulls play that, that song, I think it's called Sirius, when they announce all the names. Or when the boxers come into the arena with the hood down, right? The belt held up over their head. That's an entrance. Even celebrities. They show up somewhere, there's a red carpet, and they have to stop for all the gajillion cameras that are taking their pictures, and they need to know every detail of what's happening, and they need to make sure that there's not a bad angle and all that. They know the art of making an entrance. So knowing that, that powerful and wealthy people know the art of making an entrance, why in the world did Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? <laughs> on a donkey. Of all the things that Jesus could have ridden in on, a borrowed donkey, almost kind of sort of stolen donkey, actually, if you, if you read that. We'll bring it back, of course. But, I mean, Jesus could have ridden in on a chariot or, or, a, or a white stallion with a sword in his hand. He, he knew wealthy people. He could have called up Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea. Can I, can I borrow a, you know, a, a procession to come into the city? He could have stood and made a great speech before the walls of Jerusalem, but he didn't. He rode in on a donkey, and according to the story, he was crying. That's not a very impressive entrance for the king. Now, there were crowds, and there were palm branches, and there were cloaks, but he himself was almost out of place in an entrance like that. This was to fulfill what had been written in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where it said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble. Kind of seems out of place in that sentence, doesn't it? And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What was Jesus doing? He was teaching us a lesson in humility. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, deferred his rights on that day out of love for us. He deferred what he deserved out of love. That's humility. 
and on Palm Sunday, when we come together, and rightly so, hail him as king, the king of kings, we need to pay attention to what that king did on his big day. When Jesus' hour had finally come, he rode in on a donkey. We must ponder that and meditate upon that. But in fact, this is not new. This is the same lesson that Jesus had been teaching us since he first came to the earth, isn't it? In Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7, it tells us that Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You know what that is. Some of those other translations have robbery, but to grasp something. You ever known somebody that had a position at work and they felt threatened and you could almost see them grasping it, holding on tightly to it, make sure nobody else got it? Jesus was equal with God and did not count that as something to be grasped. But rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. John 1 says that Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him, and yet he deferred what he deserved. He gave up his rights to become a man. And we can talk all about the nobility of humanity we want. What a step down for God to become man, for the infinite to be bound in human flesh willingly. Not only that, but when he came as a man, he could have been born as the king or the president or the emperor, but instead he was born to a poor family from a bad town in scandalous circumstances. Mary, the virgin, conceived, and everybody kind of knew this was not, she had that baby a little early for that that wedding that her and Joseph had kind of quickly, you know. And that was Jesus, born in a stable, no less, probably a crowded stable with all the other poor people that couldn't afford a room. There was no room for him. And the people that came to welcome him were shepherds, people that everybody kind of like checked their pockets when the shepherds came into town. That was Jesus. He grew up as a normal child. Y'all have kids. I have kids. Imagine one of them being Jesus going out and playing with the other boys and getting his nose broken by some mean kid. And he's got brothers. And we know what James was like. I mean, read his epistle. And that was his brother. And also, we know that from the story when he was in the temple, he submitted to his parents. He's in the temple trying to learn and and being about my father's business. But it says he went home and submitted to them. The king of kings is submitting to these sinful fleshly people. He's deferring what he deserved. And then he began his ministry. But I mean, consider the kind of people Jesus did ministry to. Fishermen, first of all. Fishermen have never been part of high society in any society. But even the ones he picked, I mean, they were loudmouths. They were scrappy. John and James, can we call down fire and burn that city up? Peter was constantly telling him what he should be doing. He had tax collectors and lepers and sinners. Seemed to be a large number of disreputable women that followed after Jesus. First of all, he was in Galilee, which was not exactly the best place for a Jew to be. They called it Galilee of the Gentiles, as in might as well be Syria. Might as well be Tyre and Sidon with all the religion they've got up there. That's where he lived. And those are the people he associated with. Mark 2.15 says that Jesus reclined at table in Matthew's house, who was a tax collector. 
And many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Meaning if you showed, I've heard about this rabbi named Jesus, and you show up and here's all the tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and lepers and people that you know are, are shady businessmen that have hot tempers, and they're all following Jesus? There was no one too low for Jesus to associate with. The, the head of the synagogue, my daughter is dying, and Jesus begins to go. And then the unclean woman with the issue of blood touched his garment, and he stopped to take the time to kneel down and talk to her. Nobody was too low for Jesus to associate with. The king of kings humbled himself. He deferred what he deserved in order to love people. And that's the example that Jesus has been setting his whole life. The example he gave us is that a man of God must be willing to defer his rights and privileges in order to show love to those who need it. Up to the point where he rode into Jerusalem, not on a white stallion riding in like a conquering hero, but on a donkey like everybody else. That was the example that Jesus has set. That Jesus, we hear that name and, and we tremble and shudder. And even non-religious people, they, they don't want to say too many bad things about Jesus. Everybody will try to argue to make it sound like Jesus was on their team because they want Jesus on their team. But back then... The name of Jesus was, was no prize. It was nothing that gained you any credit or status, even though he was the king of kings. That's the example that our Lord has set. And we here, as Christians, are disciples of Jesus. We're subject, subjects of that king. And we ought to follow his example, right? And his teachings, because he had a lot of things to say to us. And I'll, I'll say, it is too common, far too common, for us to claim the name of Jesus, I'm a Christian. You know, you get cute on Facebook. I'm a Christ follower. It means the exact same thing. And, and you say, this is who I am and this is, this is my life and I've committed it to Jesus. I'll never forget when I was working, my, uh, my first job was at a fine dining restaurant. I was a busboy and there was this uh, couple and some people sitting at a table. And they came in all the time and they, this guy would just cuss out real loud and tell all these body jokes and I'm, you know, 15 walking by kind of with my eyebrows raised and then uh, one time he just was asking me about myself and he was a very nice man, just, you know, had a foul mouth and uh, somehow it came out that I was a believer. He goes, so you are, you're committed to Christ? I go, yes I am. He goes, I'm committed to Christ too and I remember thinking, really? <laughs> Doesn't sound like your mouth is committed to Christ. I didn't say that because I needed a tip so I could, you know, get paid but so often we claim the name of Jesus, but we very rarely meditate on what he actually said and do what he actually told us to do. And we say Christian, and by that we mean I'm part of a certain subculture in evangelical America rather than I'm absolutely committed to what he said. So let's take the time. Jesus did not just set us an example. He told us what to do. So we're going to go through real quickly some of Jesus' most famous commandments and remind ourselves that humility is exactly what we have been called to live out. Humility out of love. Let's begin by looking at Luke 14, verses 7 through 11. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. 
And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. A disciple of the humble king does not put himself forward, but leaves the exaltation and celebration and accolades to the sovereignty of God without complaining. Not a lot of hustle and swag in that commandment, is there? You just take the lowest spot, And see where God puts you. That's what he told us to do. Turn to Matthew chapter 20. These are, remember sword drills when you were a kid? Turn to the verses as fast as you can. Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 25 through 28. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. You ever have a boss who lorded it over you? And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A disciple of the humble king sees himself as the servant of others. And his life is at the disposal of anyone who might need it. Gail Irwin says, everybody loves being a servant until they start being treated like one. Oh, I love being a servant of God. Could you clean the toilets? How how dare you? you? You can't just ask that of somebody. That's not fair. That's rude. Well, in the church, we're not worried about that because we're disciples of Jesus. And he said, we're servants. If you want to be great, servant of all. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, I'm going to read verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. Get these kids out of here. The rabbi has more important things. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. I would never want Jesus indignant with me. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. A disciple of the humble king values people the world does not value and takes the example of simple, childlike faith as his own. The danger is when you start to grow up and you start to think, well, I started with childlike faith, but I really ought to move on to more. I need an evidence-based, I need to see things proven. And Jesus goes, you gotta be like a kid. We were having a discussion with my children about heaven and hell the other day. And I didn't have to sit there and, and quote from Aristotle or from Thomas Aquinas to demonstrate to them the truth of it. They just go, oh. My son Colton says that. He goes, oh. I says, well, no, Satan's not the king of hell. So, I'll tell you the story. Says, Satan's not the king of hell. Satan's going to go to hell at the end of time. He goes, oh, so Jesus is the king of hell. I said, yeah, but don't say it like that. (laughs) Jesus is the king of everything, right? I got to remember that one. That was a good one, right? But they just, they accept it. They accept it. And that's childlike faith. And that's what we've been told to do. Turn to Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 22. 
Good old Peter. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter thought he was hot stuff. You know, Andrew has uh, stolen my, my lunch six times, and I've forgiven him. So uh, one more time, I, th- I would think, right? Seven is the number of perfection. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or seven times 70. The idea being as many times as it takes, Peter. Well, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? Well, how many times are they going to sin against you? You forgive them that many times. Because isn't that how many times Jesus Christ has forgiven you? Aren't you glad you don't have like lives like in an old video game? I sinned. All right. I got four more. We're good to go. A disciple of the humble king is always ready to forgive the one who has wronged him, knowing the danger of hypocrisy. Jesus said that if you do not forgive your brothers, Christ is not going to forgive you. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 39. This is the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Some of you all need to go home and ponder that. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. A disciple of the humble king does not retaliate against insults. And is free with his possessions. And is not concerned by violations of his personal privacy. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, let him hit the other one too. That's one of the first things you learned that Jesus said. And you're still having a hard time with that one. Why, you expect me just to let that happen to me? Well, Jesus let an awful lot of people strike him across the cheek, didn't he? And isn't he your example? Matthew chapter 5, we can keep going. So down to verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? A disciple of the humble king loves even his enemies. Not tolerates and hopes they get it together. Loves his enemies. And does not reserve love for those to whom he has a special connection. Jesus says even even pagans love each other. They love their families. You ever seen that movie, 310 to Yuma? He's got that quote where he says, even bad men love their mamas. So so what makes you think that you're so special? You're some kind of disciple of Christ because you love your kids? Everybody loves their kids. Everybody loves their wife or their husband. He says, you've got to go beyond that if you're going to be my disciple and love your enemies. Pray for the ones who persecute you when they violate your privacy and your rights and abuse you and cast you in prison. Love them and pray for them. Jesus not only patterned humility for us by his life, he commanded it by his teachings. I wonder how many times do we allow these words of Jesus to stop us in our tracks when something's about to come out of our mouth or about to do something or go somewhere. I hope it happens a lot. 
You're about to do that and say, no, Jesus said to love them. Jesus said not to return evil for evil. Jesus said to pray for the ones that are going to persecute us. Not to stand in rage and demand that God send fire from heaven upon them like James and John. Love and humility and generosity. These are mandatory qualities for a disciple of Jesus. They're non-negotiable. An unloving Christian, what is that? An unforgiving Christian? A harsh Christian? Somebody who gets even and demands their rights, that's a Christian? No, not at all. Love, humility, regardless of how much knowledge you have gained since you first learned these things, or the experience of life that you've gone through. This is what Jesus has commanded us to do. Not only that, but he lived it out. But, just as it seems unnatural to renounce your own glory and say, I'll ride in on a donkey, it feels wrong sometimes to live as Jesus taught us to. Something inside you goes, no! (laughs) Like your little kid stamping their foot, no, I won't. I won't do it. Even we who have been Christians for a long time, we feel internal resistance to these words. Even some of y'all in here, you've been Christians for a long time. You've known these verses since you were a kid, and I read them now, and you still go, okay, uh, yeah, okay, that's fine. But we object to these things, even if you won't say them out loud. And I, I can break these down into three different main categories of objections to these words of Jesus, specifically these about loving your neighbor and turning the other cheek and all that. First kind of objection are subjective concerns, personal concerns. This is a fear over how I or some theoretical person will be personally affected negatively if we do what Jesus said. Well, if I do that, I'll get run over. Everybody will trample all over me. I'll never get ahead. I'll fall behind while everybody else moves ahead of me. We can only think of ourselves. You say, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. You say, well, you mean I'm supposed to let people hurt me? Jesus said, take the lowest place. But if I don't, if I don't hustle and grind, I'll never get promoted. That, that other guy will step up and he'll get it. We immediately think of us and how it's going to affect us negatively. Number two, we plead special circumstances. Don't we do that? This is when you hear things like this and all of a sudden you, you raise up some unique example That has never happened to anybody that might be a case where this would not be appropriate. So you're saying if somebody comes at me with a ball-peen hammer and smashes me in the head, I'm supposed to let it happen? When was the last time that happened to you? I'm just saying it could. (laughs) And we think that we're going to nullify the rule by the exception. We said, but isn't there a place to be proud of what you've done? And isn't there a place to to put yourself forward sometimes? And if I give to everybody who asks of me, then I'm going to get taken advantage of. And if I turn the other cheek, or if I love my enemies, then my enemies will think that what they're doing is right, and they'll keep going. And you have all these exceptions. And listen, the Bible has an awful lot of wisdom in it. And there are sometimes you, you, you have an alternate lesson, or I wouldn't say opposite, but just a different lesson for the time. But if your first reaction to hearing Jesus say, love your enemies, is say, but what about? Then you need to check your heart. You need to receive this as Christ's word for you. The exception does not nullify the rule. 
be hard-pressed to come up with a special circumstance where you don't have to love your enemy. And number three is just simple contradictions. It's just like it sounds, prideful people who disagree with Jesus fold their arms and assert their own rights. Well, I'm, that's, Jesus can say whatever he wants. I ain't going to do it. You're not going to say that in church. You might say it on the ride home to your wife. You might say it privately to yourself. You might be out with the boys and say, yeah, you know, I know Jesus had some good things to say. I just don't know about some of that. You're just saying no. Say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to live by the commandments of Christ. Then in, what, then in what real meaningful sense are you a Christian exactly? If you immediately, the first commandment you run across that you disagree with, you say no to, that, that doesn't make you a disciple of Christ. That just means I agree with most of this. And as long as it aligns with my opinions, I'm happy to follow it. But the minute it contradicts my opinions, then I don't have to obey. That just makes you a postmodernist. That doesn't make you a Christian. Subjective concerns. But what's going to happen to me if I do that? Special circumstances. Okay, but what about this situation? Jesus said, don't lie. What about Rahab? Oh, Rahab's an exception, all right? Learn the rule first. Or we just simply contradict and say, no, I won't. These are all manifestations of the flesh. Your body, your sinful body, panicking at its imminent demise. Knowing that you have just heard the words of life. And if you start living them out, that flesh life is doomed. That selfishness is doomed. And so it starts to throw up objections as fast as possible. And the devil's crafty. He doesn't give us bad excuses. He gives good excuses. And so we think that we're excused. All of a sudden, everybody turns into a theologian. You don't care what the Greek says until somebody says, turn the other cheek. Well, what do the Greeks say? It says, turn the other cheek. Galatians 5.17 says the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If we are to be disciples of Christ and gain all of his benefits up to and including eternal life in heaven, these commandments are not optional. This is not just something Jesus said. This was the whole character and pattern of his life. We just ran through it. From the incarnation, through his ministry, to the triumphal entry, and forward. He deferred what he deserved out of love. Jesus also was fully aware of the difficulty of this way. And yet he called us to it anyway. Didn't he? That's why he said, narrow is the road. There are few that find it. And many will come in that day and say, Lord, didn't we do all this great religious stuff in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. When Jesus separates the sheep and the goats, he runs through a long list of love, actions of love done to those that, that needed help. And that's how he determines who does and does not enter his kingdom. But surely these commands are not arbitrary. God doesn't just say things for the sake of saying things. God gives us commandments that are for our good. So why did Jesus set us this example? Why would he teach us to defer the things that we deserve out of love for each other? Well, it's no surprise to you that the world is full of strife and hatred and manipulative people and heartbroken people. And a world like that drives men to justify all manner of terrible actions and attitudes. 
In days like this, you just can't live like you used to. You know how long they've been saying that? Since Jesus was teaching these things. And it serves only to perpetuate the cycle of sin and violence and anger. So when God becomes a man, that ought to draw our attention. What's he going to do? God is here. He's on the earth in human flesh. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? Is he finally going to take it to those Romans? Mm -hmm. Even though Jesus had the right to show wrath and judgment, he instead humbled himself and showed love and taught us to do the same. All these people expecting Jesus to be some big political hero. That's what the palm branches were for. You know this, right? But I need to remind you. That was a symbol of the Maccabean Rebellion. When the Israelites had finally thrown Greece off and ruled themselves. So here comes Jesus and they're waving palm branches. It's like if we started wearing three-cornered hats and waving the, you know, the star-spangled banner. It was a patriotic response. Get ready, Rome. We're coming for you. And Jesus shows up and says, love your enemies. They're persecuting us, Lord. Pray for the ones who persecute you. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar, and render to God that which is God's. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. There's a word for those that are calling for revolution and calling for rebellion for the oppressed. Christ was oppressed and afflicted and he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We use the phrase like a lamb to the slaughter negatively. It's kind of pathetic. You're just led like a lamb to the slaughter. The Bible uses that phrase positively. Jesus chose to show love, and that love changed the game. The world is different now. People know the truth of God. They've heard it. That love and that truth has spread out all over the world, even to this place here. Just imagine, what if 10 people started living this way that we just described? What if 10 people in this room decided we are now going to turn the other cheek, love our enemies, be like little children, not put ourselves forward? We're going to be servants of all? Imagine. What could happen to this church if 10 people started living that way? If 10 families had one person that are going to live that way? If 10 workplaces had one person going to live like that? If a school had 10 people that were going to live with this kind of love? How about 100? How about 100 people living with this kind of love? How about 1,000 or a million? That's what Jesus Christ has done in the church. I'm going to multiply myself millions of times over around the world to send people out to go live like this. And you can change the world that way, can't you? The world thinks to change the world, we've got to march, we've got to shout, we've got to fight, we've got to set fire, we've got to fire weapons. But Jesus says, go out there and love some people. You can change the world that way because one life changes another. There's probably one person that you can think of that that person if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be close to Jesus like I was today. One person. One person can change another. And that's how the kingdom of God spreads. Through families. When one person in the family decides, when I sit down at this Thanksgiving table, I'm not taking the bait. I'm going to show patience and kindness and love. And I don't care if it means I'm going to be insulted and mocked. I'm going to turn the other cheek so that this does not continue and does not perpetuate. If it's going to blow up, I'm not going to be the one that lights the fuse. 
One person. One person that decides to show love. One person who decides, rather than raging at the television over this group and that group, I'm going to get on my knees and pray for them. God, how wonderful it would be if there was a revival among these people. And they started leading the way towards Christ. One person can change the world. Workplaces. What if one person at your job decided, I'm not playing that politics thing anymore. I'm not going to try to get ahead and put everybody else down and get allies and start rumors. I'm going to stop. What if one person did that? You can change your workplace. Communities can be changed. When a small group of people begins to say, we're going to love one another, no matter what, we're willing to take the loss in order to show love for the benefit of all. Churches can be transformed. Schools can be transformed. Prisons and casinos and brothels can be changed by one person coming in and showing this kind of love. The lost and the broken, the hard and the difficult. How are you supposed to reach a person like that? By shaking a finger in their face and telling them what's what? That's not what Jesus did. Jesus had hard words for hypocrites. For lost people, he only showed love. He only showed love. We get that backwards. Be kind to God's people, but those, those filthy sinners, you got to get loud. When someone gets caught up in the love of Christ, they can't resist it. That's what Jesus came to do. This is what he was teaching us at the triumphal entry. Here I come, King of Kings, humble and lowly on a donkey, praying for my persecutors. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As opposed to us that say, Shame on you. You know good and well what you're doing. No, they don't. They don't have Christ. They don't have the Spirit of God like you do. This is what Jesus has called us to do. But of course, Jesus did not just come to teach us a better way of life by his example. That's important. It's key. But that's not the only thing. It's not even the main thing. The reason he rode into Jerusalem so humbly was so that he might embrace the ultimate humiliation, which would be betrayal, arrest, beating, and death upon a Roman cross. To continue that passage from Philippians I began earlier, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that ride on a donkey was nothing compared to the naked, open shame of the crucifixion. With his enemies mocking him, casting lots for his clothing. His mother there weeping and watching him bleed out and die. He saved others, but he can't save himself. That was the ultimate humiliation that Jesus endured. But we know good and well that on Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. In total victory, the ultimate exaltation, his humility led to his exaltation. Because just as the Lord had said, everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And he was. The greatest humility led to the greatest exaltation. And what he won through that self-denial is salvation for us all. Because he tasted death and rose again, we are able to share in both his death and his life. Where you don't have to die as he did because he's already died for you. And you get to share in that resurrection life both now and forever in eternity. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. We're not relying on God's justice to be saved. We're relying on his forbearance, his kindness, his love, the humility of his son, Jesus. Jesus' humiliation opened the door for God's forgiveness, offered freely to all, including you this morning. He exposed himself to mockery and continues to expose himself to mockery by his kindness and his patience that mocked the Lord. Well, if Jesus is coming back, where is he? We've been waiting for so long. What kind of God would die on a cross? What kind of weak God is that? What kind of man tells his followers to love each other and be kind to each other and turn the other cheek? How ridiculous. He exposes himself to mockery, but that love is the only thing that we can rely on for salvation. And so knowing that, he did not shrink from the moment of humiliation. One day Jesus will come again in power and glory this time, to establish righteousness. But in the meantime, his hands are extended with an offer of forgiveness. He has not done anything less than what he's asked us to do. Forgive each other. Don't you know what they did to me? Don't you know how that broke me? Don't you know how that messed me up for life? And Jesus says, forgive that person because I'm forgiving you. I'm standing here with my arms open, welcome to forgive anybody who repents. Palm Sunday shows us not just a life lesson to be kind and humble and loving, but it shows us the posture of God towards man, which is that of grace and love and kindness and forbearance. And until he returns, and Revelation tells us he'll be riding on a white horse this time, we are sent to continue his work. We are called as Christians, not just to relax and be raptured, but to demonstrate the kind, humble posture of God towards broken, helpless people so that we can offer them the free gift of salvation. This requires from us not anger. James said the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And not rightness. You know the difference between rightness and righteousness? Rightness means I'm right about everything. Aren't I great? I'm just going to sit back and be right, and that's what it means to be a Christian. No. The Pharisees were right about a lot of things they said, but they were very, very wrong, and there was no righteousness there. There are lots of Christians that have their orthodoxy, the theological ducks all right in a row. Nobody can raise any claim or, or accusation against the way they do church, and yet all they do is sit around and be angry and right. And they don't go out and love anybody. Is that what Jesus did? That's not what Jesus did. We're supposed to reach out and love. Are there things in the world that are going to make you angry? Yes. Are people in the world going to do things that deserve the wrath of God? Yes. Do we need to have a prophetic voice to the nations? Yes. But we are to be weeping prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah who would preach these fiery messages with tears streaming down their face, loving those they were called to serve and to save. Not going out and preaching fiery, angry messages towards some sinner going to hell and then coming back and saying, I feel so good that I got that off my chest. 
Jesus said in John 13, this is the night before he went to the cross. John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We are called to take responsibility for the community, for our family, our workplace, our school, our circle of friends. To take responsibility to show love. Because sin is a cycle. It's a merry-go-round going round and round and round. He hurts her. She gets angry and hurts him back. So he feels justified in hurting her again. So she feels justified in hurting him. Now somebody else gets called into that. And round and round and round we go. You ever try to follow or trace the historical dispute between two countries? You can, you can go all the way back to Cain and Abel if you want to. It's like, who's right? What difference does it make? Get off. Be the one who says, I'll stop it now. If the last blow is going to be aimed at me, I'll turn the other cheek rather than launching the next one. I'll put a stop to this, even if I'm in the right. Wasn't Jesus in the right? They had all these false witnesses coming to accuse him of this and that, and he stood there and didn't say anything. Even Pilate was like, don't you have anything to say? Even I can tell they're lying. Don't you have anything to say for yourself? And Jesus just shook his head and said, no. Because he knew that by me taking this upon myself, the cycle will end. And this will be done forever. It can be true for you and your house and your work and your family, your city. If you be the one to take that last blow, even if it is undeserved, you step back and say, can we be done now? I'll show love rather than retaliate. We stop the cycle. We take responsibility to stop the cycle. Not just say, I'm going to duck out of it. And, and try not to engage as much as I can. No, you, you actively, proactively take the initiative to show love and kindness where you are. They don't want to receive it. Neither did we. And yet Jesus demonstrated his love on the cross, didn't he? The king of kings rode in on a donkey. And we likewise must humble ourselves, defer what we deserve out of love to serve the lost. Because this world is so broken and it's so distracted, arguing over such petty things that seem so important. This matters. We have to talk about this. It's time to have this conversation. And then you look back six months later and you go, oh yeah, that, that felt like a big deal at the time, didn't it? But then we fall right for the same thing for the next week, the next day, the next month. It's time today when everybody, it seems, has like drawn swords and is battle lines everywhere. And nobody can just be kind and, and agree to disagree. Nobody can just allow the conversation to take place. Everybody's ready for war. It's time for the subjects of this humble king to step out and do the work of love and forgiveness and peacemaking in our time. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, made peace by the blood of his cross. By deferring his rights and showing humility. That is what this church will do by the grace of God. We are not here to provide a nice environment for the children. Although I hope it is that. 
We're not here to maintain the cultural integrity of the American evangelical system. I hope we do that too. But we're here to serve lost sinners. We are not a cruise ship, as William Booth famously said. We're a rescue boat. We're one of those Coast Guard ships pulling people out of the water. This is a place where people are going to find Christ. We're going to go to the people that need it. We're going to go to those that are desperate for Jesus. Whether that's somebody who is outwardly and obviously lost, or somebody that seems to have everything together, but you know better, we are out to bring them here. I want to see this place filled up with dirty, rotten sinners that have found Christ. Not nice people. I love that there's nice people here. I like to think I'm a nice person too. But I want to see people that come in that make us a little uncomfortable, make us a little unsure. Wasn't she a prostitute? What is she doing here? Wasn't she like posting porn online and now she's here in church and she wants to help with children's ministry? I know that guy. He's a, he's a drunk. I, that guy, every time he comes and does something at my house, he smells like weed and he's here. Look at those kids. Look at their hair. Look at the, the piercings coming out of their face and the tattoos all over their neck. What are they doing here? Are those gang members in the back? Should we, should we be, be careful? Is anybody packing in here? Are we, are we safe? Are we good to go? These are the kind of people that we're set to save. To show love. Because such were some of you until the gospel found you. Now it's your job to take it out to the world. And they may hate us. They may hunt us. That's what they did to Jesus. But one lost soul, redeemed forever, will be worth it all. Don't you agree? Our king deferred what he deserved out of love for you and for me. So we must then go and do likewise. Defer what you deserve in order to show love to somebody else.